Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 657. It is May the 4th, 2011, so Wednesday, and we're going to do a cool show today. We're going to talk about creating and setting up a low-cost bug-out location or survival retreat place that you could you could you know take vacations at go hunt deer at uh, maybe even live at I'm also going to give you a great resource for information on how to do just that today a new book that's out called the dirt cheap survival retreat by MD Creekmore who's the author of the survivalist blog and a guy I really dig and I like the work that he's doing uh, he did send me a copy of that book it's uh, available from Paladin press at amazon.com I'll include links for that today. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And maybe it's a little bit lighter-hearted of a show, because yesterday we talked about some serious stuff, and we talked about storm prepping. And it was a show I felt that we needed to do, especially with what's going on and how many things that are out there that people are concerned about right now. Um, but, you know, this one can be a little bit more fun. Now, make no mistake about it, that survival retreat could be uh, there to help you in some very dark times, but it could also be part of living that better life, even if times don't get tough. Uh, even if things stay good, even if things get better, uh, having a little place to get away to is always a great thing. So we're going to talk about how to do that kind of on the cheap today. Also, some really cool announcements for you, some things that are going on with the show, and some ways that you can help with some future shows and some things that are coming. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is uh, Sawtooth Tactical. Now, you know... I don't talk a ton about the tactical stuff. I talk a lot more about the practical, but that doesn't mean that I don't look at the tactical stuff and think, man, I want that, I want that, I want that, because I'm a guy, and that's how we are, and we like our guns, and we like our gear, and we like our stuff, and we like to get out in the field, and there's no place I know of better to get that kind of stuff at great prices with amazing service other than Sawtooth Tactical, and the highest quality stuff you can you can find, you know, Maxpedition Bags, Magpul Magazines, and everything else like that. You'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical, and you'll get personalized service from a veteran uh, who believes in taking care of his customers. Next up today, I always talk about precious metal, man. We got something coming up with silver real soon. And um, I'll tell you what, uh, it's important that you have precious metal. But you know, to go along with that tactical lifestyle and your guns and your gear, do you know what a gun is if you don't have ammunition for it? A really expensive club. That's all that it is. You've got to have ammo. So the other precious metal that I recommend that you have in good supply in your home is copper jacketed lead. And the best place I know to get that with lightning quick shipping, excellent service, huge amounts of ammo, always in stock, and great pricing, BulkAmmo.com. So check out our sponsor, BulkAmmo.com. Remember, the best way to find all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Look in the right-hand margin. You'll see all the official sponsors' banners. If it's not there, they're not an official sponsor. Uh, sponsor. Click on that link and get on over and do business with official sponsors that have been supporting the show. Uh, next up today, 
remember to check out our gear shop. Uh, Tiffany and Rich do a great job with that. They have some really cool stuff over there. Check out the geocaching coins. Those are just awesome. Uh, even if you're not a geocacher, they're kind of cool and they're very inexpensive. Check out our new bottle openers. We have some lanyards. We have some cool stuff over there. All in survival cod podcast, uh, blue and blue and black. Um, Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. I want to remind, again, anybody out there that is a currently serving uh, member of the U.S. military or a prior service military person or a retired military person, you do not have to be retired. I don't care if you serve for two years. Uh, if you served your country, I now do a discount for any prior service military. If you already have an account, and I didn't do this in the beginning, and I just didn't think to do this the right way, um, you know, the best thing to do would be let your account expire. Cancel your recurring and let it expire. And then when you sign up for a new one, email me. If you are a, a veteran who is going to sign up uh, for a new account, uh, either by mail, and you're going to do the form, or if you are going to do it online with PayPal, Email me, Jack, at, at ProvideTechnology.com, and I will send you the code. You are free to share that code with all other active duty and prior service military people, but no one else. And it, I'm not going to tell you what the discount is on the air, but it is significant. And I want to give back to our veterans, and uh, they're important to me. And it's just something that, you know, I should have, like a duh thing that I should have done right from the beginning. Uh, but it's a great discount, and it applies to recurring billing as well. So it, it's, it's a lifetime discount uh, that you get as a veteran. Uh, but you have to email me personally to get that. I don't publish that because if it gets out, I believe people would use it that shouldn't. And this is just for our veterans. So let's get into the main topic of today's show. Let's actually talk about a couple announcements first I wanted to let you know about. First, I get a lot of guys emailing me. I think this guy that has this blog would make a great guest. Or why don't you contact Ted Nugent and ask him to come on the show. And, you know, Ted Nugent's the level where I would have to get involved and try to try, try to get a guy like that on the show. And maybe ask you guys to kind of crowd mob the guy and, and do it as well. And when we get up to Arkansas, finally, and we're completely done with this, which is, you know, uh, just a week away basically now. Um, we'll do that together. We'll get together. We'll pick some big targets for 2011, guys like that. And we'll try to work together on it. But most people are actually very approachable that we would have on the show. They're bloggers. They're YouTube channel developers and things like that. So the thing about putting together an interview is, in some ways, it's a lot more work because the person, if they're not accustomed to be, being interviewed, it's hard to extract from them. What you really, you know, what you really need to get from them without spending three days researching this person and, and figuring out how to get them to say what you want them to say. So what I did is I put together a guest survey form. You'll find that at the, on the website now. Uh, it's right in the, uh, it's right where the pages are listed and it's called a guest submission survey. This is not for you to fill out for somebody else, though. I want to be clear about that. So if you know somebody you think would make a great guest, instead of telling me, hey, why don't you find this person, what you can do is just contact them and say, hey, I think you'd be a great guest on the Survival Podcast. Go here, fill out this form, and if they like what you've got, they'll bring you on the air. And the form is awesome because it sets everything up so that basically when I get that submission, I can look at that potential guest, go to their website, maybe do an hour of research on their material, and I'm ready to rock with an interview. So it's better for them, it's better for the audience, and it's better for me. I want guests on this show to get good, positive exposure. I want to do a good job for them. I don't want to get them on the air and start asking them the wrong questions, questions they didn't anticipate. So this is really a great uh, way to do that. Also, if you'd like to be on the show, then you can just go there and fill the form out yourself. 
Right now, we're looking at about two weeks before we start bringing more guests on the show, uh, unless something just pops up and is easy to do because of the current living situation. But I want to start stacking these, and I am going to take a vacation. Yes, Jack's going to take a vacation in June toward the end of the month, and I'm going to want to stack up three or four or five interviews for that one week. Uh, so we've got a lot of room to bring a lot of people on. Uh, the people that we interview first won't be waiting two months for their show to go live or anything like that. But all I'm saying is between May, June, July, we have a ton of space to bring guests on. So if you'd like to contribute, get on over and do that. If you know somebody you'd like to have on the show, just pop them an email. Tell them a little bit about the Survival Podcast and give them a link. And if enough of the audience do that, if you guys see one guy you really want to hit and one guy does it and he doesn't come come to us, we'll get three or four or five guys. Hit his Facebook page, you know, rally the troops, get these guys on. We'll bring them on and we'll give you great interviews with them. Uh, next up today, I wanted to, uh, to let you know that I am putting together a whole slew of shows on money and finance for next week. Uh, Monday, we're going to do a listener feedback show, but it's all going to be about the economy and stuff like that. Uh, Tuesday, we're going to do a money-saving show. Wednesday, I'm going to do the long-awaited show on what the hell's going on with silver right now uh, with a little bit of gold mixed in with that, and we'll keep going from there. And they should be cool because I'll be up in Arkansas to do these shows at the office. Audio quality will be back to what you expect, etc. So I've got that coming. And uh, to, to help me out with the show plan for Tuesday of next week, I did a post yesterday uh, on the blog basically saying, give me your tips for saving money. How do you save money in your home? The, the post is called Help Me With a Saving Money Show. I'll put a link in today's show notes, but I really don't need to because it's the post directly under today's show. In the post, I explain what I'm looking for and I ask you to email me your tips for saving money. If you just want to do that without even going there, you can just send an email to jack at the uh, survivalpodcast.com, like always, and put TSP Money Saver in the subject line. So whatever you do to save money, let me tell you, there's been a ton of submissions already and a ton of websites and resources. The resources section of this episode is going to be like a mile long. I'm going to have to like abbreviate the post or something or post all the links somewhere else. This is going to be an awesome show. I believe that when we do this show on Tuesday, that the average listener can go through and pick two or three things uh, that everybody submitted that they've never thought of and start doing them and put $100 to $150 a month back into their, their household. And because of what we're going to be talking about next week, I want to do that because I see some dark times coming. And that kind of exchange can either empower you to do more prepping or simply stockpile more cash in reserve. And I think it's important that we do that now, so that's why I'm putting that show together. Or maybe it helps you save up to buy the Dirt Treat Cheap Survival Retreat, which is what we're actually here to talk about today. So now... The, the Dirt, Street, uh, Dirt Cheap Survival Retreat is a book by M.D. Creekmore. And I, th and he, you know, sent me a copy, asked me if I'd talk about it on the show. I'm going to do that today. And I thought it would be great to just do an episode on kind of maybe my take on doing the same things his book talks about so that the whole show had synchronicity and kind of fit together. Well, let's start out with a basic review of the book. The book's 12 bucks. It's $12 well spent. Uh, I really like the way the book is written. It's done with black and white photography, which, of course, keeps the cost way down. And I think it's sufficient to understand everything that he's talking about. The first 70% of the book is exceptional. And the second 30% of the book, and it's not a very big book, is okay. And the only reason I say that is because the second, like the end of the book, it's like some basic food storage, basic defense, uh, you know, choosing a gun, things like that. Stuff that was seemed like it was just put in there to round it out. 
I actually felt that, and this is not really being that critical, it's just if I'm going to give my honest assessment of a book, I'm going to give my honest assessment of a book. I almost felt like he really could have done more about the retreat as a whole and still filled out the book to the same length. Uh, but what he did, which is brilliant, is he, the reason that didn't happen is he's so focused on just what matters, how to find land, you know, what, what living in a travel trailer is really like, how to extend your living area, how to keep things organized, how to create additional storage space, how to solve the water problem, the energy problem, uh, how to find land that other people don't even want so that you can buy it for next to nothing. And for those who haven't read the survivalist blog, uh, MD actually lives at his retreat. He's got this little old travel trailer. He owes no one anything. You know, he drives his little pickup to and back, back and forth from town. And that gives him a tremendous advantage because right now he's already living as though the apocalypse has already occurred. So if something does go wrong, he's in, in the catbird seat, so to speak. And I don't know what his full-time profession is. I don't know if it's just his blog and if he, or if he has a job. But whatever his source of income is, you know this. He could stockpile it, right? He could build reserves because of the way he set this up. Now, as we're talking today, I'm going to assume that the majority of my listeners don't want to do this the exact same way MD did. And what I mean by that is not that you don't want your setup to be the same, but you're not really looking to go live in a 30-foot travel trailer by yourself uh, out in the middle of the woods alone and that be your permanent residence. That Most of the people that are listening to this show would see that as either an interim step toward actually building a more substantial structure or a interim step so that for right now, while I live and work in the city, I have a place that I can get away to if times get tough. I have a place that I can get away to uh, to go fishing or hunting or just relax. And instead of spending a lot of money every time I go on vacation, I can literally just drive to my own place, flip the light switch on because I have a little bit of power going on there. I can kick back in my easy chair and I can enjoy being away from it all. And maybe I only have to drive an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, and I'll talk about how far I think makes sense to make that happen. And I think that's something that most people in just about any part of the country can do if you get creative. And I want to say this again. Just because I said the last part of, the, of MD's book wasn't as exceptional as the first half doesn't mean there was anything wrong with it. It just means that the first part was that much better because it was what I was expecting from the book how to get the retreat set up. And the, the last part was a little bit more about, well, once you're there, how do you live? And I think that was important, but things like how to store food in a bucket, good information, absolutely correct information, very valuable information. And maybe if I already didn't know all that stuff cold, maybe if I was the typical person that would buy this book, I wouldn't even create that de de demarcation point in the book. And I think that's probably the case, that maybe uh, the average person that would read this book wouldn't even see that problem. So it's not a negative, it's just how I really feel. Um, if I spent my $12 on this book, would I consider it money well spent? Absolutely. Will this book remain on my bookshelf, or will I, will just, or will I just hand it out to somebody? It will stay on my bookshelf, it will always be part of my library. Uh, the information on solar and uh, being creative with your generator use and all, which I'm going to throw into my material here, um, is absolutely exceptional. Uh, the information on uh, developing skirting around your trailer, how to create storage space below there, and some other really cool stuff in the book is just great. So it's, it's probably $12. If you're looking for a book to read, and it's a book you could read in a day easy, 
to really get your mind going, to add to that library and have a reference point when you do decide, I'm finally going to do my small-scale solar um, instead of having a complicated technical manual. It's the nuts and bolts. Here's how you piece it together. Here's what you do. And here's what you'll get by doing this. Great book. Highly recommend it. So one of the things that I liked in the book and, and that I'm going to talk about now is finding land. And what MD suggests is that you don't really go to a realtor when you're trying to buy land like this. Because let's face it, if you're going to go buy two acres of land uh, for $1,500 an acre, uh, that's $3,000. All right. So now you're going to buy $3,000 worth of land. Real estate agent makes about 6% on a transaction. Six times three is 18, so that's 180 bucks. How hard is a real estate agent going to work for you for 180 bucks? I mean, you really have to think about that. So it's more you have to go out and search and hunt for the land. And he suggests things like looking for land that timber companies have already cut uh, and they're not going to manage with pine trees. They've, they've cut the hardwoods and, you know, it, that might leave the land with a lot of, uh, a lot of work to be done. Uh, but it's cheap. It, he also suggests that you really open your mind to looking for land where you cannot get electricity and you cannot get water, where you are fully off-grid, because the, the cost of the land will immediately go down as soon as that's the case. And he's absolutely correct. But I also believe that there are plenty of places out there yet where you can get an acre or three or four or more where you can be on-grid. And it can still be dirt cheap. Maybe instead of paying twelve hundred or nine hundred an acre or fifteen hundred an acre, maybe we're up to paying two thousand an acre. Uh, but if we can get three acres for six grand, uh, or even seven grand, and we can get electricity with that, we have a lot of advantages, especially in the startup phase. We can still build up all the off-grid stuff, but we can also, if we're using a travel trailer, for instance, we can have the electric company put in a 30-amp or a 50-amp box with a meter, and if we leave the travel trailer there, fine, it stays plugged in. If we take it with us and we pull it up there every time we go up there, we pull up to that, we plug it in, and we're gold. So I, I think that if you can find it, it's, it's a better way to go short term. But here's the other side. It's not just about being cheaper. The further you get into an off-grid situation, the less likely you have other people inhabiting structures around you, the more secure your location becomes because it's less likely that anybody's there. And because we're not all MD and we're not all going to go out and live on that little retreat immediately, there's going to be times when we're not there and some of our stuff is. So the more remote we can get, the less security we need. I'm going to talk more about security in a minute, but let me say honestly, um, one thing I read on James Rawls' blog that I completely agreed with is if you have a retreat, either it has to be completely indetectable or you have to have a trusted neighbor with line of sight view to your property or if you don't have one of those two things, somebody will find your stuff, somebody will damage your stuff, and somebody will steal your stuff. And I, I have to really agree with that. So there's a lot of ways we can address that. We'll get to that in a bit. But um, I, I do think with land, you got to get creative. And I think if you can do things like one of the great things you can do is go down to the tax office and look for land that's behind it in taxes. They'll post that, you know. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have to wait till that land goes to auction and go to a tax auction and all that hype. A lot of times if you find a piece of vacant land that's delinquent in taxes... Uh, you can find the landowner or the company that owns that land and contact either the owner or somebody at that company. And they'll be very, what they, what, basically what they've got to a point is they don't value the land anymore. That's why they're not paying the taxes on it. Uh, they, and they, if the city's like, or the county's saying, you know, we're going to take it away, they're like, I don't give a shit. 
So if you walk in and say, I'll pay your taxes and give you a couple thousand bucks, a lot of times you can get a piece of land very inexpensively like that. Some things to look out for. Um, MD's land is somewhere where there used to be strip mining. And he apparently has a pretty decent piece of land. But you got to be careful in those mining situations. Anything that was owned by a company that is a chemical company or used chemicals. One of the problems is if you buy a piece of land and it's contaminated chemically, it's not that you can't use it for what you intended, but you may be saddled with the responsibility for it. And once that's known, you're not going to be able to dump it on some other sucker. So, in, in fact, what the government will do is, is step in and say, you have to clean this place up. And it may be literally uncleanable, and you may buy $6,000 worth of land that requires $150,000 to make it environmentally safe. So you really have to be careful when you get into buying land from any kind of industry or anything adjacent to any type of industry. It's, it's critical that maybe you have some soil analysis done first. It's dirt cheap to do. Uh, really easy. You can send it off to a lab and get information really quick. The big thing with buying land like this is you're going to look at a lot of land before you find what you want. When you find what you want, you're going to feel like, i got to do it now. And you need to control yourself and buy smart. And the best way to buy any major purchase, and even $6,000 worth of, of junk land is a major purchase, is you must be willing to calmly, quietly, happily walk away from any deal that doesn't work. So if your budget's $6,000 and you find four acres and the guy wants eight grand for it, and you just can't come up with an extra two grand, you lowball the offer and you say, you know, here's my card, here's my number. If you change your mind, get in touch with me and you have to walk away. And in many instances, that person's going to come back to you eventually. And maybe they don't come down the full $2,000 delta, but maybe they come down a 1000 And maybe in the meantime, you come up with an additional 1000 for your budget. But you got to stick to your guns. Uh, that's the only way you're going to do this because I really worry when I hear somebody like, oh, I'm going to go out and buy a bug out location because you said to. Uh, don't do it because I said to. Do it because you want it, because you understand what you're doing, and do it in a way that makes sense for you. I... I really try to be responsible with the fact that I make recommendations on this show and people go out and put effort and money into it. Uh, it's, it it's, it's more than I ever expected when I started the show. I'm very honored by it, but I also feel it's a huge responsibility. And I don't want people doing things with large sums of money without really understanding what they're doing. I want them to use, you, I want you to use my information and my guidance and then I want you to fit that to what works for you. Let's talk a little bit about land, though, and what you need and what you don't need. I mean, because I think there's a big misunderstanding about that. One of the biggest things that I look for with land is some major portion of it has to face south and not be shaded out by, like, another hill or mountain or structure or forest that I can't do some thinning in. I've got to have some south-facing portion of the land. And that's generally, you're buying unbuilt, you know, land that's not been built on or something like that. It's generally not a problem, but... It's, it's also very conceivable you've got like a gentle sloping rolling hill set or mountain set or something like that. And you can deal with being on the side of that. Maybe if you want to do some gardening and all, you can do some terracing and all. But if you're on the north side of that mountain, you're just in a terrible location um, for, uh, for, for growing things. In, in fact, if you're on the west side of that mountain, you're only going to get that afternoon sun. And that's going to, that's going to be a very difficult thing. Now... In an ideal situation, you kind of have the top and you have some stuff on both sides. you got two microclimates to work with. You've got a south-facing uh, place that gets hit all day long. You've got an eastern slope that gets morning. You've got a western slope that gets afternoon. Uh, but at a minimum, you've got to have a south or southeast slope. 
to work with, or I'm not even interested in the land because I want to grow things. Now, if you don't want to grow anything, well, it's not as, as important. But that's also important for things like winter when you have to provide heat. Because if you are on the, the north side of the hill, you're where it's absolutely the coldest. If you're going to spend most of your time there, you know, at least planned time there in the summer, though, then that works. You see what I'm saying? Because now you've got mostly a shaded environment. So it helps cool you. So, but, but it's easier to do things like build pergodas and build cover or put in trees that give you shade in the, uh, in the summer. And let the leaves fall off and be deciduous in the winter and let the sun in than it is to try to bring heat to a place that just doesn't have any. So, so that's one of the things you really need to think about is the slope and what you're, what you what kind of sun you can take in. Uh, water is, is, is a nice to have. Uh, and you know, people say, well, you can't live without water. And that's not what I'm saying that it's nice to have water. Obviously you have to have water in some fashion, but surface water on the property is absolutely Uh, you know, like five stars, happy, we're all happy when we have that. But the other side of that, as soon as you have that, of course, it's more desirable land, even if it's off-grid. So what happens to the price? It goes up. So if we don't have water on the property, we have a couple options. One is to put a well in. And unless it's super soft soil where you can do kind of your own, like a sandpoint well or something, well or something where you can do it yourself or hand dig a well, Uh, which very few locations are going to be able to do that, you're looking at the average cost of a well of at least five to $6,000. So now we're doubling the cost just to have water. So we have to start looking at some other options. And we can set up rain catchment. We can bring water in. If there's a nearby spring with potable water that we can use, then great. In MD's case, he didn't have a spring on his property, but he had uh, adjacent property that no one cares if you go on with a spring that he was able to use as a water source. So, But we have to, we have to solve the water problem. And the issue with, you know, rain catch is, you know, an RV only has so much roof going for it. It only has so many square feet. So you're only going to catch so much water. So if you're only going there for vacations and stuff like that and you put a little cistern in or something, uh, you can probably get by. But if you're going to live out there, you've got to do something more. And most of us, even if we're just planning this as a retreat, someplace to get away to, we're also thinking about the reality that someday we might have to go there for an extended period of time. And if that's going to happen, we're going to have to solve the water problem because overall, just storing water is not enough. You can't store enough water. Bathing, cooking, drinking, it's, it's impossible. It's bulky and it's heavy. It's the most abundant thing in the world, but yet when you don't have it, you're in real trouble. So my view is if you can find a place where a well can be put in inexpensively or a place with surface water, uh, either one of those is probably worth paying a premium for if you have it in your budget. And if you said to me, Jack, I could have four acres without water or two acres with surface water for the exact same price, and I could afford either one, two acres with the surface water. Because it solves so many issues, including things like irrigation. So I would always put the premium to water. It's the one thing that I can't make for myself. I can make electricity. I can make heat. I can even make cool. And don't underestimate the fact that you can actually use water to create cooling. We can, if we have moving water, we can do micro-hydro. So if you said, I have a creek, and it's not a seasonal creek, it's a year-round creek on an acre, and it's big enough that I can put a little water wheel down there, and I can buy that, or I can buy four acres with a little pond for the same price, uh, which one was a creek, the one acre? 
Because you can do more with it. We have to think about what we're actually going to get out of our piece of land. Now, if you said, oh, I'm not really buying this as a survival retreat. I just want a deer lease. We'll get the most acreage you can. Uh, in most instances. Because the deer will find water somewhere else. And the deer will range freely and, and take care of that. You could address other things. And you could pull up to your travel trailer full of water and, and hunt for a week and go home. But if you actually want to have the potential to live there, surface water is not necessary, uh, but it sure is a premium. Uh, next up, I want to talk a little bit about solar versus wind versus having that, that grid power like they talked about. I think that ideally in a situation like this, you need to be planning long term to set up solar and or wind. And I think that there's a tremendous advantage in doing that. And I think with something like, and I'll talk about different structures here in a minute, but I think with uh, with a travel trailer, there's tremendous advantages there. Most travel trailers have a single battery you can put into, you increase your storage life, uh, you know, you link them together, and you, you throw a few solar panels up there, and they run most of their electrical systems that way. What they won't run is their air conditioner. And that's one of the big things. Summertime in these situations, when you're off-grid, with anything less than a really substantial generator, which makes a lot of noise, uh, or a, a grid hookup, you're not going to run AC. And travel trailers get hot. Uh, being a new RV owner myself, I can tell you, when they're sitting out in the sun, they get like sweltering baking ovens. So... You have to solve that problem, and one way is shade, and I think that's the biggest thing you're looking for. You would have a very hard time selling me cheap land uh, that was just an open field with no trees. Now, if parts of it are that way, fine, but I've got to have a shaded location to set up my structure, even if I'm going to build a shack or something like that. I want shade over my dwelling. Um, if you have a grid tie hookup, though, to energy, it solves so many of your initial problems, and I think it makes it easier to build out your off-grid system. The, 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 the other side of that blade, though, when it cuts the other way, is it makes you less urgent in getting it done. If you buy off-grid property, you're going to set up solar, or you're going to set up wind, or you're going to set up both. And you're going to do it really, really fast because you're going to get tired of not having any electricity at all or having to fire up a generator to run a light bulb. So you will do it, but but there'll be so many things you can't do in the early stages. So that's where you've got to make that decision for yourself. And to me, what it's going to come down for most people is when I look at all the land that I can find, and you might spend six months of shopping for land, what can I afford, what do I most want, and what am I willing to give up? And I would be willing to give up the electrical tie before the water any single day. Um. Next, I want to really kind of reiterate to you, though, how much you can do with something as simple as propane. People will say propane is not a sustainable solution. It's, it's based on carbon fuels. You have to go get it on and on and on. But, you know, four or five 100-pound tanks of propane hooked up uh, will take you a long way. One big old 1,000-gallon tank that you have somebody come out and fill up for you once a year uh, it makes you more sustainable than anybody living on any grid. Because you only have to refill it once in a while. And you have a long time that you can go. And if you know you're in a situation where it may be difficult due to financial reasons or, or just uh, you know infrastructure reasons to get it refilled, you can ration it a lot. It provides heat. It'll cook. And, of course, you can even get propane-run generators and tie everything together. So those are some things to think about and making sure that you realize what you can get done with propane. 
Uh, Cam Mather would say that's a problem with most people that go live off-grid. They just change drawing from the grid and switch over to propane. But he'll also tell you it's a great way to, to bridge the gap. And there's certain things that you can do with propane that are just almost impossible to do, at least right now with alternative energy. If you want to run a heater, if you want to run an air conditioner, if you want to run a stove... Uh, those things don't run off solar panels. The, the amount of draw that they take, and even things like a coffee maker, you'd be surprised how much draw just a simple 12-cup coffee maker draws. So having a generator and propane are, are great ways to kind of circumvent some of the early growth pains and per, put in a, a fairly sustainable long-term solution. On generators, I think that... I don't care whether you're going to go out and do what I'm talking about today or not. Everybody should at least have a small generator, something like you know a 1,200 to 2,000 kilowatt generator. Uh, they're cheap, they sip gas, and they provide so much flexibility. One of the great things that uh, MD was talking about, though, is let's say he's working on something, he's building something, so he's going to use his power tools now. Now. Running his power tools off his little 60-watt solar array isn't going to work. They're too much of a heavy draw. So he fires up the generator and plugs in the drill. Or he plugs in the, the, the circular saw or whatever because he's doing one of his projects. Well, when he does that, he also plugs in the battery uh, from his RV. So that while the generator is running, the surplus energy, because it's producing way more uh, then you need to run the drill. And remember, it's gonna sit, you're not going to start it up, run the drill, shut it off, start it back up, run the drill. You're not going to do that because it's less efficient. It's going to burn more fuel that way. So whenever the drill's not running and it's not drawing for the drill, there's a tremendous amount of energy there. So all the surplus energy goes into topping off his batteries. And I think that is a, a creative way to do things. When he goes to town, he takes his portable DVD player or his laptop, plugs it into the cigarette lighter in his truck, and it comes back fully charged so that when he uses that, he's got maybe two, three, four hours of use out of some of these devices without actually having to draw any of the energy that's there. So I think that the small generators and being creative with what you're using, obviously going to smaller TVs, if you're going to have a television out there, creates less draw. It's, it's important that you start to realize something, though, and I think this is why it's a good exercise to do. We live in a world where we just turn the light switch on whenever we want light, and we don't even think about the fact that it might not come on today. If, if we want to, to cook for two hours on a range top, we just turn on the electric stove, and there's no worries there, and the TV's going at the same time, and the kids are upstairs listening to another TV, and the air conditioner's blowing, or the, the, the heat furnace is going if it's wintertime, and whatever it is, it just doesn't run out. There's literally an infinite supply. Our limitation on our energy is based on how much we're willing to pay for it. You know, if the electric bill comes and it's $400, and we only have 350 in the budget, we have to use it last next month. But if we need it, it's there. That's not how it really works. Every kilowatt you used was generated somewhere. If it doesn't get generated, it doesn't get to your house. But we have such a large apparatus and such a huge infrastructure, it creates the illusion of unlimited energy. If you start living in a small off-grid environment, how much it takes to create energy will immediately become, uh, you'll be immediately become aware of it. And you'll start to think about how you use energy in all your walks of life. And I think that is a very important thing, and I think it'll start making you look at things like peak oil a little bit differently. And maybe it's not so much crazy talk, and maybe there's something to it. And I think that it takes maybe going into these environments once in a while to really get a handle on it. So that's why I think that it's a great way to do things. 
I also um, kind of want to talk to you now about, let's say you find your land. And now you're going to make a decision. What am I going to do with this land? How am I going to... How am I going to be able to, to exist there for more than a couple hours sitting in an easy chair going, oh, here's my land. You know, what kind of a structure am I going to have? What are your options for that? Well, a big one is to go out and, you know, and do what MD did and get an RV. And there's so many used RVs for sale. And there's a lot of them that maybe they're five, six, seven years old, but they're almost brand new because what happens is people buy them and they think they're going to use them all the time and they use them maybe once a year. And then they realize that RV camping isn't like the TV says, and there's a lot of work that goes with setting up your rig, and you have to tow it there, and, and you spend a lot of money on it, and you start to become resentful of it, but you have to pay your bills, so eventually you pay it off, and then you park it somewhere on your land, and it sits there, and one day you just start thinking to yourself, man, I don't use this thing. I'd rather have money than this RV. And there's a lot of RVs that are in that kind of uh, condition, and you can get them for 30% of what they sold for or less. So there's a lot of, there's a huge surplus of available RVs out there, used ones, especially, you know, right now, and it's been that way for years with the recession. It's time when people start looking to pull some extra cash in and get rid of things they don't really need. So that makes it uh, a buyer's market for the used RV. It solves a lot of problems. Anything else you do, you're going to have to put in plumbing. You're going to have to put in some sort of a kitchen. You're going to have to put in some sort of a bed. You're going to have to build out all, you know, some some sort of insulation. Some, and they're not the greatest insulated things in the world. Actually, they're terribly insulated, but there's something there. But they come with plumbing. They come with electrical wiring. They come with, a, you know, basically if you want to run anything, goes off the batteries. The, 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 everything's set up, and all you have to do is charge the batteries. Most of them, they're 110 outlets. They don't have any inverters built into them. The, the 110 outlets, the plugs, like you plug stuff into your wall, will only work if you hook them up to a electrical circuit, you know, like a 50-amp or a 30-amp circuit like at an RV park, or one you have put in yourself, or run a generator that way. But you can, you can fix that really easily by just putting in an inverter, or, or two, depending on how much power you're creating, and you can have inverters do a little bit of 110 action. So the electrical infrastructure's built. All you have to do is throw solar or wind up and you've got a sustainable system. And if you have a generator, you plug that in and you've got a system that's at least as sustainable as your gas supply. Uh, they have a plumbing system in. So you have an on-demand water pump. You turn the thing on. As long as there's water in the reserve tank, water comes out. So there's tremendous advantages there. In, it's basically you pull it up and it is a little mini house. Some disadvantages. If you're not going to be there, you're faced with two choices. You drag it back and forth, which may not be a problem for you if you have the right kind of vehicle and things like that, uh, or you risk somebody literally stealing your entire house. Now, there's some things we can do. We can, we can, you know, we can take the wheels off the damn thing and set it up on cinder blocks, and that's going to make stealing it a lot harder. But they're easy to break into. There's very few things in the world easier to break into than a travel trailer. Uh, give anybody, any criminal five minutes at a screwdriver and he's in, uh, and probably far less than that. So you, by leaving it there, you're inherently at risk. But there's something to be said for having everything that you need. And if you have a great big truck, uh, or at least a sufficient vehicle, and your bug out location is an hour away or two hours away, being able to just take it home with you, That's another advantage. So, but then there's a limited amount of permanence you're going to set up there. You know, it's not, it's only going to be so prepared for you if you have to rely on it for a week or a month or a year.
which we could get into a situation where that's what happens. So that's kind of the trade-off there. The other option is kind of the shack-shed approach. And I like that because a reasonably sized shed is going to have, or shack is going to have so much more room than an RV really ever will have. Just the shape alone is going to create a greater feeling of space. But now we have all of the problems that we do with the RV and more because I don't have the option to take it home with me. So now whatever I have in that shack or shed is sitting there as a target. So am I remote enough that it's not likely to be found? Then it's still probably going to be found. Or do I have a trusted line of sight neighbor? If I have a trusted line of sight neighbor, and, and, and you, know, you got to find somebody like that that can keep an eye on it for me, that's, that solution can work. Without that, stuff's going to disappear. So then you have to take what I call the empty shack approach which is basically there's very little in the shack, but you have everything you need stored on site. So maybe you have underground caches. Maybe you even have underground caches underneath the shack. You have hidden doors and things like that where you keep your food and your ammo and whatever else that you have out there. And uh, I think that would be a, a, a reasonable way to do things. And another thing you could do with that is maybe you just have, you know, if you have a solar array set up or something like that, um, and one timer and one little low wattage light bulb that comes on at you know seven o'clock at night and goes off at six a.m. Yeah, it's drawing energy, but it's actually a good thing because you're getting some power drain and recharge of your batteries rather than just sitting there topped off constantly. Uh, you're you kind of get the batteries being used, uh, and your system is in use, so you're actually going to get longer battery life that way. In, in my view, anyway, and some of you electrical engineers may tell me I'm wrong. I, I don't think I am with that. And that might create the illusion that somebody's there. On the other hand, there's a negative connotation there. It's visible in the dark. So you might be better off not doing that. You know, This is one of these things where there's no right answer. It's just an understanding that if you have a structure somewhere that you're not around to take care of, it's vulnerable. So one of the other options, and I had a guy come on that's actually done this, and he's doing it in a big way. It could be done in a small way, is burying a shipping container. This can be com almost completely invisible to, uh, to anybody passing the property. Even if it's only buried halfway and hilled up. If you think about a structure that's eight feet high, if you have a four foot rise and fall, and you do that, you know, with a real gentle slope, and then you plant it, you know, so you're over top of your structure, maybe, maybe you go five feet down, and you only have about one foot of cover, on the actual top of this thing, and you create kind of a drop area, you can make that almost invisible. Uh, they're affordable. You can get you know a really good quality large shipping container uh, for five thousand dollars delivered or less. Problems um, more difficult to turn into some kind of a dwelling. Absolutely, because you've only got an eight foot wide area to work with. So everything you do, as far as putting in a bed or something like that, you know, kind of reduces your your hallway space a great deal. Uh, two of them side by side welded together. Now you've got a substantial structure. You've also just really blown up your price. You also are going to have to to bury something like this. You are going to have to, and I mean absolutely have to, uh, bring in heavy equipment. So there's going to be an expense there. But the other thing is, it's just a shell. If you want a kitchen of some sort, you got to build it. Um, if you want to be able to burn anything down there, even propane or what have you, you need a chimney of penetration and coming out through the top. Um, there's there's a lot of the, there's a lot of downside to this as well. In fact, you need a penetration anyway because you need oxygen down there. 
You can't seal yourself in there uh, in the dark and sit there and not asphyxiate. So there's a lot more to doing this than I think people, when they just kind of fantasize about, I'll get a shipping container and bury it. Uh, there's a lot more to doing that than I think a lot of people are aware of. So I'm going to recommend that maybe you go back and listen to the show that I did with the gentleman that did this the right way, if you're thinking about the shipping container thing. Uh, another option, though, and this would be something really cool, and something I really want one of these, man. This is like the ultimate man cave. I watched a show on Home and Garden or something like that. It was called Man Caves, and this guy's wasn't a survival thing. It was in his backyard. But he found some used concrete culverts, the really big ones, the ones like you can walk into, huge concrete things. He got like three of them in like one that was a vertical piece, and he got them for like $5,000 or something like that. And he buried them, and he built the inside almost like it almost looks like you're inside a submarine because the walls are curved, and he put these floor panels in so he's got storage beneath the floors. And that thing's a bunker, man. And it really was, I think he probably, the actual structure had less money into than you would have in a shipping container. Because you're going to bury a shipping container, you've got a lot of timbering work to do. You basically have to frame out the inside because shipping containers hold a tremendous amount of weight on the corners, but not in the center. If you walk on top of one, it'll give underneath a man's weight. So I think he had less money into this thing to get the infrastructure in than you would spend on a shipping container buried alone. But he had tens of thousands. It was like a yuppie thing, you know. He had big screen TV on the wall and a bar bar put in and stuff like that. But man, what a storage facility! What a storm shelter uh, that would make. So, what my point even bringing that one up is that there's just so many options out there if we start thinking about it beyond a travel trailer or a shack. There's other ways to do things underground. You could do uh, a Mike Ayler underground house type of structure, which you know you can get a book called The $50 and Up Underground House from Mike Ayler. You could go to a, another level with the underground house, which is not really an underground house. It's kind of a half underground house is the way that Mike builds them. Uh, and you could do uh, a Paul Wheaton Wolfati structure, and there's a whole uh, uh, episode on doing Wolfati's. The point here is to be creative and to think about ways that you can create a, a place with some level of permanence that's low profile. But again, the other side of this and what makes the travel trailer so attractive is no matter what you build, whether it's a buried set of pipes, whether it's a buried shipping container, whether it's a, a shack like you, you, know, you see an old miner living in from Scrapwood, or whether it's a great big shed, real nice one like you see from Home Depot, all of those things are just shells, and if you want anything inside them, you have to pay for it. And anybody that's done basic remodeling of a kitchen or a bathroom the cheap, on the cheap knows that it's, there's no such thing. It's expensive. So it's going to be expensive to put that stuff in. Now there's ways you can go repurpose things. You know, you can probably find an old toilet that somebody's throwing away and, and use it to, to do that part and what have you. And that brings me to the next thing. Now we've got to deal with waste. We don't just have to get water in. We've got to get water and waste material out. What MD did is built his own little homemade um, septic system out of some of those 50-gallon blue barrels, uh, which promptly backed up and failed. So now he uses a, a camping composting toilet. And that's an option as well. You could build an outhouse, but you've got to make allowances for this. And on the cheap, it's not somebody comes in and puts in a proper septic system for you. Unless, if this really is a long-term project and the budget allows for a well and a septic system now and building a permanent structure later, then you go ahead and do that and you solve the problem. He also said, I can't remember the book he references in his book about building the, uh, the septic tank, for a one or two person dwelling like he has, 
It would have worked just fine in a lot of places. It was the heavy clay soil that wouldn't allow for the leaching uh, that, that was necessary. It would, if he would have come in and really dug the area out a lot, the much bigger leach field, brought in gravel and things like that, it would have worked. But at that level, it was uh, it was something so so large of a project. You might as well do a normal septic tank. So this little mini septic system thing in gravelly, sandy soil apparently would work just fine. But you know, this is a problem we have to solve. Now, I've talked to people that basically have, you know, they've created their own composting toilet, which is pretty much you do your business and you throw a big pile of sawdust on top of your business and every time you do that, you do that again and then you dump that into a compost pile and you do the human manure thing. Um, I'm not real happy about that idea, but I think it would work. I think it would work just fine. And the people that do it swear there's no problems with odor. If I'm going to do that, though, I think I'm doing that with like an outhouse structure. I think I'm actually going to take that. I don't want that in my dwelling. And I don't care how much you say it doesn't stink. I'm sorry. Uh, basically, for six months of my life when I was living in Honduras in Macora, when we were building these, this road out in the middle of nowhere, we had no plumbing. Uh, we had what we called piss tubes. And these were PVC pipes driven into the ground. And they spread lye around them, and they had a little screen over them to keep the bees from going in there. We figured that out the hard way because the bees apparently liked the urine. And you had like this little wall thing around them so you didn't offend anybody. And when you had to go, you just walked up and peed in this tube. Well, that solves the urine problem for men, but not for women. It doesn't solve the other problem. So we had these, um, they look just like outhouses with these little things underneath them and a fit, half of a 55-gallon drum with a bag in there. And uh, they would pour some kind of chemical thing in there was supposed to keep the smell down. But you know what? I was so happy that I worked in the camp instead of out on the road because we had these Honduran guys that had to come around and do the nasty business of hauling the waste away. And when they came in there, they would scrub the whole thing down with pine saw, put a new fresh uh, bag in the bin, and dump pine saw in the bin to help keep the odor down. And... I would literally run to be the first person into one of those so that I could make it till the next day and not have to go in there when five other people had done it or ten other people or 40 other people had used one. Uh, it's a god-awful thing. And even with the chemical suppression, it still was god-awful. And I don't want that inside my home. Yeah, Whatever I'm going to use in my home is going to take it away or handle it very, very efficiently. I'm not going to just rely on sawdust if it's going to be in my home. I know some of you who are doing it are going to tell me it works. Fine. It can work outside in the outhouse. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Um, I've also heard people say that one of the cheap solutions for this, uh, if you don't have access to a lot of sawdust, is a cat litter that's very inexpensive called feline pine. Uh, and it does a very good job of uh, suppression of the odors. And I, I would think that that would work pr probably quite well. Uh, but we do have to think about that as well. Uh, the next thing we have to look at is our distance. Uh, desirable and tolerable are the two ways that I put them. Uh, desirable would be an hour to, to two hours for me. I think anything closer, and it's almost too close, Unless you're sort of already out in the sticks. If you can find a place that's a little bit further out, a little bit more secure, and gives you what you want, it's 45 minutes away more power to you. But looking at like the two-hour range, I think, is ideal. Almost anywhere that you can live, if you draw a circle of two hours of travel distance around that, it's not going to be a perfect circle because roads and routes, and whether it's a state highway, a main highway, or a back road, is going to change your travel time. So you end up with this kind of funky-looking circle. 
Odds are that in one direction or multiple directions, you go actually toward greater population, and the other direction you go toward a lower population. If you go in those lower population directions at two hours, you're significantly generally away from the fray anyway, from the big problems. The beauty of that, if it's two hours away and you want to do some work on it on Saturday and you wake up at 6.30 and you get ready to get your butt out of the house by 7, uh, you grab some uh, breakfast on the way and you're there at 9 o'clock, you can work from 9 o'clock till 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, enjoy your retreat, get some things done, get in the car at 3 o'clock, drive home, and take a shower, and by 5.30 you're popping a beer and making dinner for your family on the grill. You could have gone alone or they could have went with you. Either way, this all works. Um, my location, which again was a, very, very different than what we're talking about today, because it had a permanent structure on it, a full-size house. My place was ready. You know, as long as it's taking us to get out of here, if we just need to go there and live, Six months ago, we could have just left everything the hell here, took only the stuff that was part of the bug out plan, went up there, shut the doors and lived for six months and not cared. So that's a kind of a different level. But even with that said, at a five and a half hour trip, five to five and a half hours, depending on whether or not I have to deal with a female bladder during the trip, because uh, when the wife's along, we're going to have more pee breaks. And that's the difference between five hours and five hours and 40 minutes. It's it's you don't do that. You don't drive up today, work up there for today, and come back today. You don't even do it and come back tomorrow. It's it's too much of a pain in the ass for a one day trip. Which means if you have kids, if you have dogs, if you have things like that, then you have to either bring it all with you or have somebody take care of it. So whenever we've taken trips up there, it's been a significant interruption. You guys have even seen it interrupt the flow of the show in the past. So my point is, if you can get that distance down to two to two and a half hours or less. You can literally be out there every week on day trips. And that lets you progress so much faster, and it lets you enjoy it so much more. But you may live in a place where it's not practical and it's not possible. You may have to extend that to three and a half, four and a half, five hours. Uh, I, ca- I consider distances of about four to seven hours tolerable, but not desirable. And I consider distances beyond seven hours almost intolerable for the purpose. In, you know, if you have a retreat somewhere up in Wyoming, you go mule deer hunting once a year or something like that, that's fine. But it doesn't really fill the purpose of what we're talking about today. Something that you can get used out of. I mean, that's the big thing I want you to understand. Even if you're not going to be MD and say the hell with everybody and go live there and just pocket your money. I want this to be, if you're going to set this up in the way we're talking about today, something you can get out to and use often. There's, there's something to be said for, you know what, Friday we're going to get off early and work, both of us, and we're going to pack up and we're going to go up to the little retreat, we're going to hang out there, maybe we're going to plant some trees or bushes or something like that, put in a couple hoogie culture beds, kick back, grill some food on the grill, uh, and just listen to silence for a change. Having, I believe that if most people could set something like that up for themselves, there'd be a lot less use of psychotropic drugs in the medical profession. I think we'd put psychologists and psychologists both largely out of business if we had that ability to decouple. And that's why I think this makes so much sense. And it's a plan for the future because that land can then be developed later on. So it lets people that have professional careers that need to live in higher population areas have a little piece of that homestead dream that they're working on in the future and they're going to get there faster. 
because they're going to start opening up options. And one day you start looking at this and go, you know what, we could just go ahead and get a mobile home, put it on there and be done. Or we could go ahead and start building a house. Or we could go ahead and like start extending what we have. And if something falls apart along that path, and you're going to lose your home or whatever, you have a place you can go and you can make it. And you can rebuild your life from there. And that two-hour limit, if you have to, you, if you find a job short-term until you figure out what to do, you can commute that. That's doable. It's not desirable at all. It's not happy at all. But it can be done. So there's a lot to be said if you can control that distance and make it work. If you live in New York City, that may be all but impossible. But in most of America, you can probably pull two to three hour uh, distances off and find the type of land that you're looking for, the type of situation that you want. Um, security when you're off-site is going to be difficult. But one of the big reasons that you might want to have a property on a grid-tie situation, especially if you can get Internet access, is that it would be possible for you to very inexpensively put in a lot of security cameras because uh, they're you know they're not going to use a lot of electricity, but you just need the grid to run the computer and everything else that goes with this, um, and have remote surveillance of your property, and, and be able to do that uh, at all times. You could even do things like wire in some uh, MERS motion detectors uh, into a computer system, which is I don't know exactly how to do that, but I know it can be done. Uh, it could be done simply with uh, with the, the transmitter sitting next to a microphone uh, with basically a voice chat set back to wherever your remote monitoring station is. And you could actually have motion detectors and cameras that you could monitor from three hours away quite easily if you have the infrastructure there to support it. That would at least let you, when you see someone sneaking around, pick the phone up, call the local PD in that area and say, hey, someone's breaking into my house right now. Now, is that... Is that going to be as good as being there? Absolutely not. And do you do I expect it in some remote piece of land the sheriff's going to get there in five minutes? No. But he might get there before they take everything that you have. And if one person gets busted at a place, kind of in the in the vermin underground, it kind of gets out that hey, there's something going. These people know what's going on. It's not abandoned. So th those are some other things that you can think about. The big thing with security offsite is to make things as invisible as possible, to not be obvious about what you're doing. Underground structures obviously are great for this, but there's other things you can do. I told this story long, long time ago on the show. I'll tell it again now. There was a guy that was a good friend of my family when I lived in Pennsylvania as a teenager, and his name was Petey. And, and, and this guy was like an old old war vet. I think he was a vet of the Korean War and a great friend of the family. And he used to take me fishing up at a place called the Cinnamahoning River, which was near where our, uh, where our bear and deer camp in, in, uh, in Pike, or in Cameron County, actually, uh, PA, up if you know the area at all. It's up there by the New York border. And uh, he had a little place up there, too. And sometimes in the summer, we'd go up and we'd fish the, the Cinnamahoning. He had this little old beat-up Willie's Jeep. And, I, I mean, I thought this, this guy was so cool just because of the way he had this set up. He had this little shack back on this little couple, couple acres, had been in his family forever, little hunting shack, and you drove down this dirt road, and it was adjacent to state game lands, and that's why that's what everybody tried to do up there, was to get a piece of private land adjacent to state game lands, because it was like your backyard is you know thousands and thousands of acres, but you had your own little place. And you're coming along this, and all of a sudden we come to this place, and he wouldn't even look, he just turned, and it looked like he was turning right into the woods, because he had let it all overgrow there, and you'd kind of like, you know, the stuff's moving out of the way of the Jeep and all, and you'd go maybe 10, 10 yards like that, and then it would open up like a little four-wheeler path, just big enough for this Jeep to go down. And he'd drive, and, you know, a couple hundred yards in, and by now you're, he's on his property. 
and we get to this spot where it was just like it was just briars as far as you could see on both sides of the path where you wouldn't want to try to get through it and he had these two about two foot wide four foot deep trenches cut in the road so it was like a trench two feet and another trench and then he'd walk off a couple feet into the woods and say come on with me and he had these two big oak planks and we'd take these two oak planks and we'd create basically and these are like these big ass old planks like they used for building uh, houses in the 1850s we'd put one each side of where you know where the tires could fit on them and you'd drive across that and we just while we were there he'd just leave them there but when we would leave he'd put them back over in the woods well that at least prevented people from backing a pickup truck and loading up everything he had. And you would have had to know where these things were to find them. And I asked him, why don't you just throw them in the back of the Jeep and we'll take them with us. And he said they're too big and they kind of stick out the back. And besides, other people use the structure that we're allowed to, other family members. So you can get creative with security as well. You can just, you know, gates keep honest people out, but trenches keeps, you know, it's, it's tough to get around. These days with so many four-wheelers and motorcycles and dirt bikes and, and stuff like that out there, there's not. It, it takes a lot to keep those types of people out. But uh, like I said, his solution was, I mean, just this area where this trench was, which is massive amounts of briars and stickers. I don't know if he had planned that or just worked out that way. Or he selected a place like that to put the trenches in. I never thought about it that much as a kid. But uh, you, can get, you can get creative with security. Uh, making things look just like a place that people don't want to go to is another thing. Warning signs about dogs, warning signs about trespassers being shot. Uh, they don't know whether you're there or not. Uh, there's a, a guy that lives up on the, the last house on our road in, in Arkansas that had some kids got up in there and set fire and it almost burned down his house. And he put up a sign now that's just spray painted. And it just says in spray paint on an old piece of plywood, nailed up on a telephone pole, keep out or else. And I know the guy, and even I, when I go walking up by there to say hi or whatever, it makes me feel like, now if I want to walk back here, I hope he recognizes me. Uh, and I think those type of signs work better than the ones you buy in a store because there's something about them that just says, this guy's serious. And you don't know what kind of maniacs back there. So signs like that. Another sign that I've, I've heard you know, from the, the user of that's extremely effective. Uh, there was a guy, I think the place is called Boar Hollow or something like that, down in central Texas. A place I've boar hunted a couple times. And uh, you know, he tells you how to get there and you come to this gate. And they're only there on the weekend. So they receive their hunters on Friday afternoon. You hunt Saturday and Sunday and then you go home Sunday evening. And then they're... You know, unless they're out there to check on the place, they're pretty much not there through the week. So they open the gate, so you get to this gate and it's open. But on the gate there's a sign. And the sign says, you're not lost, you're trespassing. Now the first time I went there, there's the big sign, Boar Hollow or whatever it's called. I know that's where I'm going, and even I'm going, I don't know if, man, you know, do I really want to drive? I almost called the guy on a cell phone first day. I'm coming in. It's okay. Because I know people hunt back there. I know they have guns. And the sign is, is the sign hits kind of a primal instinct because it's taking away your excuse. And I asked him, I said, why did you guys come up with that sign? He said, we all had all kinds of no trespassing, trespassers will be shot, all kinds of stuff like that. And people were breaking in here all the time. I had to be out here almost every day to make sure that nobody was ransacking the place. And I have a full-time job. This is a part-time business. Uh, and so we came up with this sign because everybody that we caught would say, Man, I'm so glad that you're here. I was trying to find somebody because I was lost. 
Now, this pretty much has one road in and one road out. If you're lost, you turn around and go the other way. But the sign, he said, their incidence of trespassing is almost zero since they put up that sign. So signs staying to keep out, if you get creative with them, can be more effective. I think if you spray-painted keep out and maybe made it look like a kid's writing or something, like some dumbass, you know, hillbilly that can barely spell, you know, or you know, spell, you know, keep out or else, like what's his, uh, Roland's sign uh, up on the hill and maybe spelled else wrong or something like that, um, it, it might really stir up the, the I don't know that I want to go there type of emotion. Um, I also think that one of the best ways you can find your land is to start with conventional real estate. But here's how I mean that. I, I spend hours wasting time away on a site called United Country. It's all rural real estate. It's I'm going to warn you, if you pull the site up at your office or something during work, it's one of the biggest time wasters in the world because you can sit there and look for houses that are little shacks for $10,000 uh, all the way up to multi-million dollar estates in, in, in the wilds of Montana and everything in between that, and it's just an awesome site. But if you start looking on that site and you start targeting places with, let's say, you know, 10 acres, and you start to find a place with a lot of 10-acre plots that are significantly lower cost uh, than surrounding areas, and that's in your little two-hour or three-hour or four-hour whatever bubble that you create around where you live, uh, where you're willing to buy there. If the mainstream property is more affordable, then what we would call the junk land is also going to be more affordable. And there's going to be more opportunity to buy there. So what I call that is basically you're, you're taking a, a, a position where what you're doing is identifying the area. And you're using the mainstream listed property to identify this is an affordable area land-wise. And then we're going to go into that area and we're going to hunt. And we're going to get creative like talking to timber companies or mining companies or going to the tax office or just driving around and looking for... If you see a piece of land that just looks like no one's doing anything with it, often you can go down to the county tax office, pull up the plot and find out who owns it and contact the owner. You're going to con you know, For every nine owners you're going to contact... You know, or 10 owners you're going to contact, nine of them are going to tell you, I'm not interested, go away. You're looking for the one. And you only need the right one for that to work out. Uh, MD, uh, in his book, I almost forgot this and I'm glad I didn't. MD, what he did is he got the local paper in the area he was looking and he advertised, I'm looking for land. I'm looking for cheap land. You know, no electric connections, no water necessary. Contact, you know, MD Creekmore with a phone number. And he got tons of responses, and most of the places he got responses for, he had no interest in buying whatsoever. He had plenty of people contact him that were trying to sell, you know, two acres for $25,000. He's like, that's not what I'm looking for. He should have known by the ad that's not. But, you know, you're going to have to deal with that, but it's a great way. Instead of you going out and looking for the land, try to get the person that wants to sell the land to come to you. When you get somewhere in the ballpark with pricing, you know, you've got a motivated seller. That person actually saw the ad and called you. You could do that on Craigslist. Right, so in the you know you can do that in small town papers. It's affordable, it's easy, and it's like look at it this way: when you're out there looking for the property and you're going to the tax office and you're doing all that, it's like hunting with a with a rifle or a bow. You're out there, you've got your shotgun, you're Elmer Fudding it, and you're looking for that rabbit. Okay, if you see the rabbit, you shoot him. If you miss him, you miss him. If you shoot him, you shoot him. You got a rabbit. Well, that's one way to skin the rabbit, right? Well, the more effective method is to go out and set up 20 traps for rabbits 
and then go back to your campfire and cook up whatever food you have, and then a couple hours later to walk your trap line. And all the traps are doing the work for you. That's what we're doing when we advertise we're looking to buy land. Basically, it's like setting snares out there. Sometimes you're going to come up to your snare, and it, it, you know, it just didn't, you didn't catch the rabbit. The rabbit was there, and he got away. Well, that's the $25,000 two-acre piece of land you're not looking for. Uh, sometimes you're going to go out there, and you're going to find a skunk. That's the ramshackle piece of land that's saturated with chemicals that you're not going to buy. And you're going to go, how do I get him out of the snare without getting sprayed? Uh, you know, but it's, it's a little easier there. And then once in a while, you're going to go out there and find a nice, fat, juicy rabbit. And that's your couple acres for three or $4,000 that's in the right place with everything you're looking for. And you might have to run that trap line for a long time, but eventually you can find it. I believe it's, it's, it's possible for anyone to do. And that kind of wraps it up today. I hope this is a, a good show. Uh, I really recommend MD's book. I think that it would go really well uh, with with what we've talked about today so far. Uh, again, I will provide a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it'll be where you can purchase it on Amazon. I'd appreciate it if you'd purchase it through that link. I'll make a quarter or something for everyone that I sell. Uh, but uh, you know, you can get it also directly at PaladinPress.com, and you can get it at MD's blog, which is the SurvivalistBlog.net. I really recommend you start reading his blog too if you're not already a reader. He's a great guy, and uh, once we start doing kind of the big push with interviews, he's a guy that I plan to get on the show, and I think he'd make a great interview. But I, as I finish today, finally, I do want to kind of point this out. Nothing I've told you today is anything that any person uh, that's capable of sound mind and body, uh, that's a functional human being on planet Earth in America today, can't get done. It's nothing that's that complicated, even if you do something like bring in and bury a container. And all This is a project you can complete and actually have a livable place for fifteen to $20,000. I know not everybody's walking around fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in their back pocket, and it may take you a couple of years to get that accomplished. Uh, but you can also get it done for for eight to ten thousand dollars. You can probably get it done for seven. If you look at everything MD did, I think he's got about seven to eight thousand dollars in his place. But even I want you to kind of go out into the twenty thousand dollar range or the twenty five thousand dollar range and realize how many people right now are driving around in thirty five thousand dollar cars that they pay six hundred dollars a month for for sixty months. And at the time that they're paid that last payment, if they don't trade it in and get more debt, the car is almost worthless. Where improved land has become worth more. So most people have the capability to sink twenty to thirty to forty thousand dollars into something in the next five years. My question is, what do you want at the end of it? Do you want a nice piece of homesteaded land you can get away to that eventually maybe you can build your permanent homestead on and go into a semi-retirement with? Or do you want a worthless car that you can get maybe $7,000 for? Because that's the choice that, that America is making today. The majority of Americans aren't even considering the alternative. And I'm not saying that, that this type of a bug-out location, survival retreat, getaway place, whatever you want to call it, vacation property, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes it fit in your family and your, your mindset right, call it what you want, is what you should be doing with that thirty dollars to $40,000. But I'm saying that whatever it is, almost anything... Almost anything you pick to do with it is probably better than a, than a car that will depreciate in value by 20 to 25% before you make your first payment, the day you drive it off the lot. And a car that will continue to depreciate in value or a truck that will continue to depreciate in value every single year. 
So people say, well, I got to drive something. But you don't have, you know what you can do is you can go buy that five year old car for $7,000. And you can put the savings into building something like this. And I think that as America shifts into a, a, a society that is going to eventually pay for the party. They had the party, but we're going to pay the bill. The check is going to come due, and we are going to see defaults at city and state levels. I'm telling you that's going to happen maybe in two, two years or less, but I think the big defaults are three years out, and I think when they start, this whole thing changes in a way you can't believe. Now, I'm not saying that I could be, couldn't be wrong, and we might not see a default of a major municipality or state in the next 16, 18 months or less, but I don't think that's where we're at. But I'm telling you, it's going to happen. These cities are going to go bankrupt. These states are they're already there. If they were companies, they'd already be out of business. The question is, how long can they float that? And when that starts happening, you're literally going to see an implosion of the currency. Because all of the debt holders out there are going to decide it's time to go do, play, play their game elsewhere. And they're going to start dumping our treasuries. And every time debt is repaid, which is what the Federal Reserve will do, they'll dissolve the debt by printing more money. The currency contracts. And you're going to see a currency collapse, and they're going to have to come up with a new currency. Whether it's a global gold-backed currency, and all the gold bugs think hallelujah, and they have no idea how bad we're going to get screwed when that happens is, or it's a national gold-backed currency. I explained this to a listener I had dinner with last night. If you go to a national gold-backed currency, and all the other major nations do as well, and everybody bases their currency off gold, it's a very easy conversion to a global currency from there. And I think that's the end game. And I think that is where... All this wealth that's tied up in America, that's debt-based, gets extracted out to the rest of the world. That's going to be the biggest redistribution of wealth. As these things start to occur, and I don't care if it's that way, I don't care if it's peak oil, I don't care if it's greater unemployment, I don't care what it is. The ability to get your ass out of bad situations is going to become more and more important. And the dream of having something someday like we're talking about starting very humbly with today and building long term is going to get harder and harder to have. It's going to get more and more difficult and it's actually very easy right now. And I think that's why if this is what you want, it's time to start looking, planning, and allocating for it today. Basically what I'm telling you is this. You can drive a nice shiny car for the next five years and have it be worthless or you can build something for yourself that will last to another generation. It's up to you. Which one of those is more important to you? And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody else.